masters of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true thought of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist scholar, stay-at-home mom to three, freelance writer, and happily, so happily, back in my wheelhouse with this new series on the fantastical medieval poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I first want to address the elephant in the room. We all have very limited time in our lives day to day. So why should you read this, or any for that matter, medieval poem together? or listen to me discuss it. After all, there's an endless amount of other things we could be reading or consuming. Philosophy, theology, Instagram, literature, the Bible, anything, social media, the latest work of literary beauty, or a comforting old friend of a novel. Let me make a case to you for Gawain. I've now been studying medieval literature for a decade and nothing outside of Jesus and my family has more opened up to me my humanity in its created beauty, community, and profound limitation. The humanities are called the humanities in part because in reading works from a time alien to us, we learn our human selves locked in these fascinating other human histories and moments. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is a profoundly human poem, which is kind of hilarious given that it's about mythical kings and queens, monsters, sorceresses, beheadings that don't stick, a strip of cloth that possesses magical powers. But what makes discovering our shared humanity with all its gifts and curses alongside medieval folks more fun is all that magic stuff and the absolutely stunning poetry, which is its vehicle. Plus, it's spooky season, and this poem is delightfully spooky without being scary. So let's read Gawain and discover ourselves, consider the image of God and human perfection, think hard about what we put value in, find friends and teachers who lived 700 years ago, and have fun in that process. Because as you shall see, we're all Gawain. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was written in the late 14th century. To put that in context, the poet writes at least 200 years before Shakespeare writes Romeo and Juliet, at least 125 years before Martin Luther ignites the Reformation with his theses. 
This poet is writing during a particularly calamitous and dramatic time in England. The church is divided over who the Pope is in the great papal schism. England and France are constantly at war. Oh, and there's that minor issue that the bubonic plague just killed a third of Europe in what we now call the Black Death. Ethical issues over war and violence, corrupt secular and religious power, living through a pandemic? This sounds suspiciously relevant. We can perhaps barely begin to imagine what life looked like when a third of your friends and family had just died from a grotesquely painful illness. But none of this appears directly in this poem. It's set in the fantasy of the ancient past, the world of King Arthur and his knights. It's New Year's Day, and the court has gathered to feast. Arthur and Guinevere in their youth, strong, beautiful, full of righteous conviction about what knighthood and virtue mean. Gawain, Arthur's nephew, is the hot young thing of that hot young court. He's known for his bravery, chivalry, courtesy, his way with women. Into this dazzling setting of strength and youth strides a massive knight upon his horse. From head to toe, he's green, and he's rather rude. This is how we begin this strange little poem, and you'll have to tune in more. Uh, You'll have to tune in to hear more next week. Now, we all know about King Arthur today. The legend has lived on. But in the 14th century, Arthur was even more wildly popular. Arthurian legends could be best compared to the Marvel Cinematic Universe today, that comic and film behemoth that comes out with a new movie almost constantly. Within Marvel, there are multiple storylines, wildly varying personalities, um, even within the main characters, even different universes and outcomes. But it's all understood to be part of the mythology of Marvel Comics. The tales of King Arthur, Queen Guinevere, and the Round Table of Knights were the 14th century Marvel, with different storylines, styles, emphases, and characters, but all taking place within this commonly recognized England of the distant, legendary past. Also like Marvel, some of these poems and songs are powerful and well-crafted, and others are definitely more like cheesy B-movies. Despite the poem's incredible virtuosity, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was not actually a blockbuster bestseller of its day, like, for example, The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer, which some of you may hazily remember reading in high school. While The Canterbury Tales survives today in about 100 manuscripts from the medieval era, only one copy, one, of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight survives and it rests in precious solitude and solicitude in the British Library. This poem is older than the printing press, so it appears in a handwritten manuscript called Cottonero AX with three other poems, Pearl, Patience, and Cleanness, that scholars assume are by the same poet. For what it's worth, Pearl might be my favorite poem in the entire world. I love it so much, I named my eldest daughter Margaret, which means Pearl. Sometime I hope to read it together in this space. But back to the manuscript, you can go visit it if you're ever in London. You can peer in at the precious artifact in its climate-controlled box with bulletproof glass. 
But for those of us stuck in the States or elsewhere, you can look at a digitized manuscript if you're curious online. And the link is at oldbookswithgrace.com if you'd like to check it out. You probably have noticed I have not mentioned the poet's name. That's because we actually have no clue who wrote this. There are theories, but nothing close to definitive. Here's what we do know. It's likely, though not certain, that the poet was a cleric of some kind because he had an education and he knew Latin quite well. I do say he, though we don't know for sure, because of the poem's content and the high level of education evident in the poetry. Sadly, women just did not have the same access to books and education that men did, although I would love to get to heaven and be wrong on that one and discover that the poet was a woman. Some scholars believe that he had read the latest Italian poetry, like Boccaccio and Dante, and that these writers influenced him. So he was pretty sophisticated and up on the latest literary trends, despite the fact that he was not from London nor Southern England in general. He lived in the northwest of England in a more remote area, and he writes in a dialect from that area in Middle English. Middle English is what scholars call the English of the Middle Ages, and it looks and sounds very different from the English that you and I speak today. This English, uh, Middle English, is already pretty difficult for readers today to understand without some training and practice. But one can still struggle through some medieval writers like Julian of Norwich or Geoffrey Chaucer without a ton of experience because the dialect of these writers was a dialect from London or close to it, which is the linguistic ancestor of modern standard English. However, our poet's northern dialect makes his writing far more difficult. Today, our regional differences in language have become so smoothed out by the dominance of radio and television. But imagine a world where it took days to get from town to town. Neighboring regions in England could sometimes barely understand one another. It reminds me of when I, a clueless Arizonan, went to Boston when I was 12. I went to a donut shop and this woman asked me for my order with her thick, incredible New England accent. And I just stared at her. <laughs> she laughed at me and said, you're not from here. Clearly, I was not. This is like the Middle English dialect that we're learning, except way more intense. In a perfect world, you'd be able to pick up this poem and enjoy it by yourself. But the language barrier makes it too difficult. Here's an example for you, and I'm going to read to you some of the Middle English from this poem. New is the new year, and the nicht passes. The day drives to the dark, as dritten bidis. But will the weeders of the world waken to the root, Cludis kesten kinly the colder to the earth? With nich enoch of the north, the naked to ten, the sna snittered full snart that snapped the wheel. The werble and wind wapped through the heath and drove each dale full of drifties full greater. Whew, pretty incomprehensible, right? These lines describe a particular moment. Gawain is waking up in bed on the morning he faces his potential death 
and the world outside on New Year's Day is shatteringly cold, snowblown, and unwelcoming. I'll share a translation with you in a minute, but let's sit with this wild, snapping, otherworldly weather poetry for a moment. When I read it to you, when I read it to you, that is, did you hear the repeating sounds in the lines? The snaw snittered full snart is one of my favorite lines in this poem with its SN repetition sounding to me like a horse snorting and pawing in the snow or like a man sniffing with a drippy nose as snowflakes catch in his eyelashes. The entire poem is alliterative like this to varying extents. Each line has a letter or sound that it repeats again and again, both at the starts of words and prominently in their middles. And here's a funny thing. In English, alliterative poetry is a much older tradition than rhyming poetry. Rhyming poetry in English comes originally from French and Latin sources, languages with an abundance of end rhymes in their words, as you may remember from high school Spanish or French classes. These languages, uh, they abound in rhymes. It's easy to find the rhymes um, at the ends of words. English, in contrast, does not offer wealth in rhyming. Instead, uh, and by the way, this is especially before the Norman Conquest when um, French really entered into English. Um, So English uh, before that and when the alliterative tradition was just beginning just didn't have much rhyme. So early English poets created rhythm and they harnessed sound through alliteration, like in the famous poem Beowulf. This is the kind of tradition that we see the Gawain poet participating in, even though he lives long after the Norman invasion. Here's Simon Armitage's translation of the same lines that I just read. Now night passes and new year draws near, drawing off darkness as our deity decrees. But wild-looking weather was about in the world. Clouds decanted their cold rain earthwards. The nithering north needled man's very nature. Creatures were scattered by the stinging sleet. Then a whip-cracking wind comes whistling between hills, driving snow into deepening drifts in the dales. As with any poetry written in a different language, translations cannot fully reproduce the original. But Armitage's gets very close. He uses alliteration to great effect. I love that whip-cracking wind whistling between the hills, which can't you just hear that in your mind, in the W sounds and the whistle of the wind? If you're wanting to follow along with the poem, be careful what translation you use. Make sure it's alliterative to get closer to that original sound of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight that was, is so distinctive. However, if you're feeling, mm, I don't think I'm going to read this poem, I think I'm going to listen to you read it and enjoy it. It is not necessary to read along in this series. I'll be working to make this poem accessible to you, whether you're reading or not. So I hope you'll join me in thinking about it regardless. For those who are going to read, I'd recommend that Simon Armitage translation with J.R.R. Tolkien's as a fun second place, if you'd like that. And I have those up on oldbooksWithGrace.com if you want to um, click on the link and look at them and make sure you get the right one. 
but there's also free translations online if you'd like to follow along without buying yourself a book or getting it at the library. For those of you who are not going to read, equal and exciting welcome. I'm so excited you're here to think with me and enjoy the Gawain poet. We may never build a time machine that can take us back into the past. Old books are the closest thing we have. Poems like these are a precious gift. Not only is Gawain constantly beautiful and even funny at times, it's a window back into a time so different from and yet so similar to our own. How are we special today? How are we not special at all? How can we confront our hidden biases and beliefs about the way the world works, about our being in the world? How can we live to learn to live a virtuous life? How can we face our failures and our triumphs without letting either define us as creatures of God? These are the questions I hope to think about with you in this series, led by our sneaky, anonymous poet friend from the depths of the 14th century. Come along with me. Let's enter King Arthur's castle on New Year's Day, sliding in behind the giant green knight on his enormous green horse. No one will notice us in his wake. Be sure to check out oldbookswithgrace.com for any of the links I've mentioned today. I'd really appreciate it if you enjoyed this to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram or Twitter for more little fun old book tidbits. Old Books with Grace. Thanks for listening. heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas Prayer Book by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser, published by the Sophia Institute Press.